Why has one of the world's largest lakes never been seen? Who was the first actress to make over a million dollars in a movie? Mmm. Mm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Okay, Marsha, the first actress to make a million dollars. You want to guess? I say Mary Pickford. Ah, from no. that silent era. Yeah. Nope. Is it from the sound era or the silent era? Sound. Sound era. Okay, then I would think of. Uh, hmm. You know the actress and you know the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a big to do at the time. It's not Catherine Hepburn in the nope. Philadelphia Story. Nope. It's not uh, Vivian Leigh. It's before that, right? It's in the 30s? Nope. I need some clues. I need some clues. 60s. Oh, really? It wasn't until the 60s that a woman made a million dollars in a motion picture? <laughs> Over a okay, million, Okay, then yeah. it had to be Cleopatra and... That's it. ...our friend Elizabeth Taylor. Our personal close yes. friend. Yep. 1963. When the movie was first planned, her $1 million salary was half of the original budget. For the whole movie, it was going to be $2 million. Oh, jeez. That's Remember, everybody was saying, how dare she how demand do- 50%? 50% of a $2 million movie? It's exorbitant. But the film's budget boomed to $31 million. Wow, that was a lot back then. Oh, yeah. And her paycheck boomed, too, to $7 million. Wow. And that, that's worth around $54 million in 2022. We're talking uh, Marvel hero salaries Well, that's now. like for one movie, yeah. she made the equivalent of $54 million yeah. In 1963, right? Yeah. From her youth, Taylor had been a bold negotiator and wasn't afraid to ask for what she was worth or to end a negotiation that wasn't going her way. Originally, she didn't even care about starring in Cleopatra, which incited her to make that bold request. Oh, I uh, (laughs) see. I don't don't even want to do this thing, so I'll ask for a million. Yeah, we all do that. Well, I'll ask for the pie in in the sky. Uh, So she asked for a million and 10% of the box office gross. Wow. Thinking there was no chance 20th century would agree to her terms. To everyone's surprise, they did. And she would later say, if someone is dumb enough to offer me a million dollars to make a picture, I'm certainly not dumb enough to turn it down. <laughs> so. That's good. All right. All right. All right. My question is about okay. one of the world's largest, largest lakes. lakes. Why has it never been seen before? Is it because it's in Antarctica or something? That's exactly right, because it's under a lot of ice. There's a lake underneath all that ice in Antarctica, because Antarctica is a continent. It's not just a big pile of ice. There's land underneath there. There is? It's a continent Uh, below its glacial snows. Okay. Beneath the ice and snow, there's a huge lake down there. It's called Lake Vostok. Vostok. It's 150 miles long and up to 31 miles wide. Is that Russian? It is under Russia's Vostok Station. And they didn't know it was there until about 1990. Okay. They had a drilling project to retrieve ice cores below that station, and then they realized there's a lot of water down there. Oh, okay. They continued to drill, and they had to go through almost two miles of ice. And when that drill hit the lake at 12,366 feet, that's how far they had to drill, pressurized water from the lake rushed up the hole, and then it froze, creating a 130-foot-long ice plug. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, my. So it whooshed back up and froze. Yeah. Shot up out of the hole. 
And uh, most scientists believe that lake is the product of volcanic activity that melted a portion of the ice overhead. And then that ice became a lake. Lake Vostok. Vostok. Vostok, or Lake East, the largest lake in Antarctica. And I believe it's the ninth largest lake in the world. Interesting. I thought so, too. All right. Going back to Elizabeth Taylor, Mm -hmm. old blue eyes. Oh, wait, she had violet eyes and two sets of eyelashes. Did you know that? (laughs) No, I didn't know that. Two sets of, what do you mean? She'd wear them at the same time? No, I mean, she had two real sets of eyelashes. Yeah, it was kind of a freak thing. Violet eyes and thick eyelashes, two two pairs of them. Oh, you mean natural eyelashes? Naturally, I thought you meant something she had made for her. No. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's why she had those great eyes, I guess. And why she was married so many times. Guys liked them, batting her eyes. Eyes at them. Okay, so uh, how many times was she married? Oh, I think she was married like five times, wasn't yeah. she? And twice to Richard Burton. Yeah, but it wasn't five. It was eight. Oh, my God. <laughs> eight. You know, yep. I was going to say seven, and that would have been closer. Uh-huh. But so there were eight times. Yeah, to seven different men. Conrad Nicky Hilton, remember that? Yes. Michael Wilding. Michael Todd, he's the one that died. Yeah, he was a producer or director, and he, I think he died in a plane crash, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah, Eddie Fisher, Richard Burton twice, John Warner, wasn't he a governor? Uh, senator. Senator. In Virginia, I believe, and yes. And then the last guy, uh, Larry Fortensky, remember that guy? He, Larry Fortensky? Yeah, he was always in a- Oh, he was like a truck driver or something. Something, yeah. He was totally different than, say, uh, Nikki Hilton. <laughs> she just really- a, She just wanted a regular man to she, be with, she, I think. I know, after that whole lineup, I don't know. We were growing up when she was very popular. She used to say, why did I marry eight times? Because yeah. my generation thinks it's important to only have sex during marriage. Yeah, yeah. Or so something she was getting like married constantly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's also the reason, eight husbands, is why she had one of the most valuable jewelry collections in the world. When she died at 79 from congestive heart failure, her jewels were auctioned off by Christie's for $115.9 million. Oh, my God. It broke the record for the most valuable private collection of jewels. Wow. So she had the most valuable private yeah. collection of all, jewels in the world. Yeah, all, the, uh, all those husbands uh, popped up uh, some pretty pricey things for her. Okay, Marcia, we all recently went through the process of changing our clocks because of daylight saving time. So I have some questions on time zones. Okay. Okay. What country has the most time zones in the world? Uh, Russia. Russia. Russia has 11 time zones. Am I right? No. France. No. Yes. That's ridiculous. It's like a tenth of the size of Russia. It's a country the size of Texas, but it has 12 time zones counting its possessions around the world. And oh. if you count the land it claims in Antarctica, it has 13 time zones. <laughs> okay, well, that's stretching it. Okay, so the U.S. also has 11 time zones like Russia. I, I think most of us think of just the time zones across North America. Yeah, right. You know, the Pacific, Mountain, yeah. Central, Eastern, and so forth. But and there's Hawaii. There is Hawaii. And the, all of the possessions of the United States. Yeah. So they're scattered across the world in multiple territories. And uh, counting its territories, the state of Hawaii and everything else, there are 11 U.S. time zones. Okay, but the most is in France. France and its possessions. And its possessions. Okay. Okay, I've got a couple more questions on time zones. I'll ask you one more right now. All right. How many U.S. states observe daylight saving time? Uh, 48. And which ones don't? Arizona. Yes. I don't know the other one. Is it out east? 
the one that probably doesn't need to worry about daylight savings or daylight because it's tropical. It's of Hawaii? Island. Hawaii, yes. Okay. Yeah, Hawaii, all states but Hawaii and Arizona, except the Navajo Nation, which cuts through Arizona and yeah. I think New Mexico, they observe daylight savings time, but those two states don't. But the territories of American Samoa, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands also do not observe daylight savings time. Oh, okay. Okay, Bob, quickie. How old was Marco Polo when he left Venice for his famous exploring adventure into Asia? I think he was pretty young because he was going over there at the age of 19. 17. 17. That just blew me away. 17. And he racked up in his life nearly 15,000 miles in travel points. But he was going there with his uh, father and I think his uncle. So there were three of them traveling, I believe. They were traders. Okay, he wasn't all by himself. He wasn't by himself, but yeah. still very young. You're he's right. Been, yeah, he spent 24 years of exploration and had lots of adventures, and he managed to survive a meeting with the infamous Mongolian ruler, Genghis Khan, <laughs> who was quite an interesting person. Speaking of personalities, I've got famous celebrities and what their real names are again. Okay. So Fred Astaire's dancing partner, Ginger, Ginger Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. What was her birth name? Any idea? Ginger's birth name was Gladys Pope. Virginia Catherine McMath. Okay. She changed it after winning a Charleston competition, the dance, in 1925 and went out on tour. Ginger comes from her first name, and Rogers is her stepfather's last name. So she toured as Ginger and her redheads. She was a, <laughs> was a group. All right. Who is Dana Elaine Owens? She goes by a royal name. She's an entertainer. Dane? Dana. I'm e thinking, is it Dane something? No. Dane. I, I don't know. She calls herself a queen. Latifa? Queen Latifa, yeah. Really? Yeah. Dana Elaine Owens. Okay. That's she, a nice name. She was born in 1970. In 2004, she put out the Dana Owens album. So she used her oh. real name. She changed her name when she was eight years old. She found Latifa, meaning delicate, sensitive, or kind, in a book of Arabic names at the time. That was when others in her New Jersey neighborhood were switching their names to other Arabic origins. So I'll be darned. She decided to add Queen to make it really strong. <laughs> queen Latifa. Boy, that's pretty good at that age. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, Bob, what group of people created the first oil paintings? The first oil paintings, mm -hmm. as opposed to what were they doing before that time? I don't know. Well, what were they painting with? <laughs> blood? I don't we know. We paint with blood. <laughs> we paint with sweat. Tempura? I don't know, but oil paintings. Okay, the first oil paintings were done by, uh, let's see, this must have gone back to, uh, would that go back to the Chinese or was it the Italians? You have to guess. I'll say the Italians. Okay, you guess wrong. Okay, I'll say the Chinese. No, you're wrong. I'll say the Egyptians. Okay, <laughs> nope. who, who was it? I would have said artists from the Renaissance period. Oh, it had to be before that. Yeah. The very first known oil paintings were created far from Europe. In the 7th century CE, Buddhist monks in Afghanistan used oil paints to create murals on cave walls. Wow, 7 CE, so that's the common era. That's like 7 AD. First oil paintings? Yeah, hard to believe. Do I, we have any of those paintings that they created? Oh, cave walls, that's where they are. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, Marcia, geography again, your favorite subject. What is the state that is the deepest in the country in terms of being the farthest away from any bay, gulf, or ocean? It's triply landlocked. In America? Yeah. What state is landlocked? Triply landlocked. 
To get to this state from the nearest、What、Gulf, to, Bay, or Ocean, you have to travel through three other states. What part of the U.S. is it in? It's in the Great Plains. Yeah. Okay. I'll say Wyoming. No, that's a good guess, but it's a nearby neighbor, Nebraska. Okay. Nebraska. Yeah. All the other landlocked states in the country are either singly or doubly landlocked. This is triply landlocked. Wow. It's home to two million people, known for its agriculture. Two million people. Okay. All right, Bob. Of the four main characters in Seinfeld, who was missing from the first episode? Four main characters. So that would be Elaine, Jerry, George, and Kramer. Kramer. I bet it was Kramer. Kramer、I'd... was added later. No. Okay. I bet it was George. George、mm. was. <laughs> It、wasn't、no. Jerry? It had to be Elaine. <laughs> That's right. Elaine wasn't there. Good, good deduction there, wow, Bob. Okay, well, it was I got Elaine. It. Yeah, there was another female character in that first episode. Her name was Claire. She worked at the diner. I think she was the waitress where Jerry and George hung out. But even with Claire and the pilot, it was just too male centric. So while people like Rosie O'Donnell were considered for the part, Larry David, the creator and writer. And Louise Dreyfus had met and worked together on Saturday Night Live. You mean Julia、yeah. Louise Dreyfus? Yeah. Okay. So he pitched her because he liked her, and she was intrigued by the writing. And she said it was unlike anything on television at the time. And she went for it. Now she was perfect for the role. Oh, she, she was great for that role. Remember her funny dance? She said she practiced that for hours in front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid looking and、yeah. so funny. <laughs> Remember that was one of the shows you and I just didn't get it at first. We watched an episode or two and went,、eh, I don't know. How that was you, Bob? Okay, that was me. Yeah. And、uh-huh. then all of a sudden it clicked in, and from that point on, I liked it. Yeah, I know. I joined the rest of the world. You did. And let's join the rest of the world after a break. Okay. You're listening to the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Okay, we're back again. The off ramp for the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. We do this every week because we love facts and figures, and and the library, and we love the library too. Yeah. Okay. More questions on the time zones, Marsha. Oh, yay! Coming up later. All right. First, the question is: Where was the first Ferris wheel, and how big was it? Where was the first? Was it in Venice? No. Oh. Here's another question: <laughs> What inspired the first Ferris wheel? Oh, well, Ferris.、Uh, what's his name? His name was Ferris, wasn't it? He was a Pittsburgh engineer, and, George、uh, Washington Gale Ferris. Yeah. But what was he trying to do? He was trying. He was inspired because he was told the World's Fair. The World's Fair in Chicago wanted something to, to compete s- with. With、uh, the Eiffel Tower. That's exactly right. Okay. So he suggested a giant revolving metal wheel, which must have seemed like crazy. He was 33 years old, a Pittsburgh engineer. How big was it? How big was it? How many cars were there? Jeez, 320. No, there's only 36, 36. cars. That's all. Okay. But I... each one held 60 people. Oh, 60! <laughs> well,、yeah. so that means there were 2,160 passengers at a time. Oh my God!、Okay. That could be on the first Ferris wheel. That is a World Fair-sized carnival ride. And where was it located? That was in Chicago for the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition oh, in 1893. Oh, is that the one that, but like the white、uh, yeah. thing, the book I read? Yeah, the White City. They wanted a showpiece to、yeah. rival the Eiffel Tower, and they、yeah. got it with the Ferris wheel. Okay. And after that, it was sold to St. <laughs> Louis for the 1904 oh, World's、really? Fair. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, okay. But all of the wheels that we see now, those ones at the county fairs, those are called Ferris wheels because of this guy. But they're tiny compared to the original. 
Can you imagine sitting in a seat with 60 other people and going around? No, I cannot. Especially, we're all so fat today compared to back then when uh, I'm sure it didn't add up to that much. Okay. Can you tickle yourself successfully, Bob? <laughs> well, no, I don't think you can. Why not? Because you know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And tickles are surprises. That's my thought. That's your thought. Okay, but... next question. No, <laughs> tell me about it, Marcia. No, you're right. You can't tickle yourself successfully because your brain knows that you're using your own fingers to do it. <laughs> it's like, it's impo- this is a fraud. I'm it's not going to Im- laugh at it's this. It's impossible to be surprised by a self-tickle. Unfortunately. The mind dials down the sensory response in such situations, and much of the joy or displeasure of being tickled apparently comes from the lack of control. We had to do a study to understand <laughs> what, what makes a tickle Have you interesting. Ever tried? I've tried. Have you tried to tickle well, of yourself? Of course, everybody does. Yeah. You know, you know, can you just run your finger across the bottom of your feet? Does that make you laugh, you know, and yeah. that type of thing? Marcia, why should time be known as Fleming time? Fleming, well, he was a scientist. He was actually a Canadian railroad engineer. That's what I said. A Canadian <laughs> railroad engineer. He came up with the original idea of dividing the world into 24 longitudinally based time zones. He did become Sir Sir Sanford Fleming because of his, his idea, you know, okay. which was adopted worldwide, you know, mm-hmm. all over the place. Okay. England, Scotland, and Wales adopted it the year after the United States, and then it spread throughout the world. But this is typical of anything human beings do. Let's make a rule. There's always somebody who has an exception, right? Yeah. You make a law, there's going to be a waiver, there's going to be (laughs) an amendment, there's going to be some way to circumvent that and go around it. So, speaking of that, where in North America will you find a time zone at a half-hour increment? In America, half-hour increment is in... I'll give you choices. Saskatchewan... Indiana, Newfoundland, or Arizona? Arizona. It's Newfoundland. Thank you. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, they're 1.5 hours east of Eastern Standard Time. Okay. So it's an unusual time zone, 30 minutes ahead of Atlantic Standard Time. Okay, Bob, you'll like this. What is the longest-running primetime drama in the history of American television? The longest-running primetime drama? Yeah. Well, now... Gunsmoke was very long. That lasted 20 or 25 years. Is that the one? No. So this has been on longer than that, and it's it's a drama. It's still on. It's still on. And we watch it. Not NCIS. Nope. What is it? It is a a mind boggle. It's not even American. It's British. Masterpiece Theater. Oh, really? It premiered its first episode in January 1971 following the success of a 1967 adaptation of The Foresight Saga. The Boston affiliate for PBS ran The Foresight Saga, and the guy, his name was John Galsworthy, and he saw that success and wondered whether there might be a growing American appetite for British drama. Mm. While on vacation in London, he convinced the execs at BBC that a partnership could prove fruitful for both of them. Oh, really? So it was one TV station? Yeah, network. He was PBS. But it was the guy in Boston who said, hey, this is something. WGBH, I'll bet. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what it is. Good for you. Now, 50 years later, American viewers continue to clamor for classic British stories told with beautiful sets and elaborate 
costumes. Do you remember who was the first host of Masterpiece that Theater? That was uh, Alistair, Alistair Cook, wasn't that That's his it? name? 22 yeah. years. Yeah. He turned down the gig because uh, he said, this will never last in America. They won't like this. So he only signed a one-year contract, and he kept signing one-year contracts for 22 oh, years. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. His, I didn't his, know that. His daughter wanted him to do it. She said, this will be cool. You'll be in America, and you'll be the host. And well, he had been in America. He was like yeah, the Edward R. Murrow yeah. of the British broadcasting. He came to America, I think, during World War Two, I believe he was here, and then he would report on what's going on. What, yeah. are, the, what are the Yanks doing, yeah. you know, Yeah, on and, radio? And so this is interesting, too. In 2008, they dropped the word theater to make it sound simpler and sleeker, and they split the series into three parts, Masterpiece, Masterpiece Mystery, and Masterpiece Contemporary. Hmm. Masterpiece is hosted by Laura Linney. Yes. And that guy we like, Alan Cummings, he hosts Masterpiece Mystery. And David Tennant hosts Masterpiece Contemporary. Huh. So they split it up into three, but it's still Masterpiece, and it runs for all these years, 50 years. That's very success story. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. And it is. It's wonderful. It's that show that brought uh, famous people into the light, Helen Mirren, Benedict Cumberbach. They weren't known at all. Right. They became, were British actors on yeah, these shows. And they became big stars because of Masterpiece. See, now I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's how they came to the fore. Uh-huh. Okay, how did Eric Marlon Bishop come to the fore of comedy? What's his name? Eric Marlon Bishop. That's not his name now. I know. I take it as some other... Here's a clue. Thank you. He felt female comics were put on the stage first, since there were fewer of them, so he changed his name to be androgynous. Ah. To Jamie. Jamie Foxx. Oh, Jamie Foxx. <laughs> that's, that's how he did it. The MCs were picking which stand-ups would hit the stage next, and they would pick women. They'd always find, who's the women's name here? Okay, we'll put her out there. So that's he chose smart. Jamie, and then he landed on Fox as an homage to Red Fox, uh -huh. one of his comic heroes. But Eric Marlon Bishop is Jamie Foxx's real name. And, of course, he's in films now, too. He's an actor. Uh-huh. Just going back a moment. What was the most successful masterpiece series of all time? Upstairs, downstairs. Nope. Okay. Uh, well, then it must have been Downton Abbey. That's it. It's the most nominated non-U.S. series in Emmy history. It had a total of 59 nominations and 12 wins. It ran from 2010 to 2016, and they're still making movies from it. We went to see one not that long Isn't ago. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it was hugely successful. Well, going back in time, Marsha, we're now looking at supersonic planes. They're talking about starting those up again and flying between the continents. You might remember the Concorde, and that uh, that was very controversial when we were growing up in the 70s. Why? Because of the ozone layer. So there were only two airlines that ever flew the Concorde because it just didn't get the popularity among the, you know, aeronautical people. Wasn't it very expensive to oh, ride yeah, it was on extreme. it? Oh, That's why it was extremely yeah. expensive. There's only a few planes, you know? Yeah. So what are the only two airlines to ever fly the Concorde is the question. I'll give you choices here. Okay. Pan Am and TWA. That's one. Air France and British Airways. Lufthansa and Qantas or British Airway and TWA. I think the first one, I think it was that one, and I think it was, uh, the, and the second one was uh, Lufthansa. Actually, it was probably one of the few things the British and the French ever agreed on. Oh. It was Air France 
and British Airways, those are the only two airlines that did, did it. Really? And it was a big deal because... So we didn't do it, America. No, oh. no. In fact, uh, they wouldn't even let it land in the United States for a long no time. No kidding. But a flight from New York City to London today still takes seven hours. But for nearly three decades, there was a supersonic option that would run three, three and a half hours between New York and London. Oh. Amazing. But only two airlines ever ordered the aircraft, and they were Air France, who flew it from Paris to New York, and British Airways, who flew it from London to New York, and then that was retired in 2003. Speaking of the Brits, which we're doing a lot today, who's the first British monarch to hold a university degree? Oh, that's interesting. Wasn't that Prince uh, Charles? Yeah. The new king? Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah. Then he decided to forego the traditional at-home. The homeschooling that the British the, were the fond home, of. Yeah, the tutoring for royals. <laughs> I think homeschooling if you're a, a king is a little different it than homeschooling di- in, in Minnesota yes, or somewhere. The home tutoring for royals, and he sought out a higher education. In 1970, Charles received a bachelor's degree from Trinity College at Cambridge, becoming the first heir to the British. Crown to earn a degree of higher education. Isn't that amazing? It is. So you yeah. had royalty ruling England for centuries that weren't educated. In a Except degree. by tutors. Well, I'm sure they had the best tutors, but yeah. still, they didn't have degrees from Oxford and places like that. Holy cow. And he studied anthropology and archaeology and history, and he's very passionate about the environment and all that. And so he has Seems an imp- to be very well-rounded. Yeah, he has an impressive range of topics to balance alongside his royal duties as king. Well, one more question on time zones, Marcia, to round out the time oh, zone it, questions. Okay. Now, we know there are some states that have multiple time zones. Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, and Nebraska have multiple time zones. Okay. But they're vertical. The state's oh. chopped in half, for instance. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So what state has the north and the south with different time zones? There is a state, and we visited, that has northern and southern time zones that are different. What state? Uh, uh, it's in the west. It's in the west. It's in the northern desert. Northern desert. You're very familiar with it because <laughs> your daughter lives there. I Would it be Boise? Well, uh, the state, Marsh. Oh, Idaho. Idaho, yes. <laughs> the state is Idaho with a little help from Bob. We have Idaho. Yes, the northern tip uses Pacific time. The southern majority of the state follows mountain time. Now, why? Because the closest major economic areas to those two regions are in different time zones. For instance, Boise, biggest city in the state, that's down in the south, shares mountain time with neighboring cities like Salt Lake City. And upper Idaho shares time zone with Spokane in Washington, which is in Pacific time. Okay. So that's the only state where the time zones are different in the north and the south part of the state. All right. All right. So now we know the answer to that. Fascinating. Do we have any words of wisdom to wrap up the show, Marcia? I'm ready to finish up with a couple quotes. Doris Day, gratitude is riches. Complaint is poverty. <laughs> and, uh, and Irving Berlin. But what, what if you're complaining about your poverty? What, what is that? <laughs> I don't know, Bob. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Irving Berlin. Got no checkbooks, got no banks. Still, I'd like to express my thanks. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Oh, I bet that was a depression song. That's a great song. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you said that, I had the rhythm. I was thinking of that the song. the sun in the morning and the moon it Sounds at like night. it's song lyrics to yeah, me. It is. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Well, what a great way to wrap things up and get out of the time zone questions. <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. Absolutely. <laughs> and it I know. Is... Your geography and time zones are not your favorite subjects. No, to know. no. 
Uh, hello. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll be back in another week with another episode of our little wonderful excursion into fun, frolic, facts, and tantalizing trivia. It's called The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.